0: Hello, and welcome to the Heartland Tuesday Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. Today I'm pleased to have as a guest a colleague from Heartland who I don't get to communicate or work with nearly often enough, Jack McFerrin. He's a research fellow within Heartland Socialism Research Center. I last had Jack on when Heartland released his study last year discussing uh, the title of it, Environment, Social and Governance Scores, a threat to individual liberty, free markets, and the economy. The study clearly demonstrated how elites in the public and private sector are working behind the scenes to impose their environmental and social policy preferences on the economy and the general public. Now he's here to discuss a largely ignored threat to people's private property. Not necessarily or primarily real property, as in real estate, but their investments. People think they own stocks and funds, but Jack's here to tell you that ain't necessarily so thanks to laws passed by the legislators in your states. Uh, Jack, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Sterling. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I, I enjoyed being on last time. Um, but but I would say that this is perhaps an even more important topic uh, than, than the ESG is. And I've only recently been able to get my arms around it over the past couple of months here. But it's something that affects every single American that... Owns any type of investment security, um, so I mean the first thing that that wait, I Wait, 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 off... wait, 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 yeah,
0: you're getting ahead of me there, buddy. Let me, uh, let me, okay. uh, let me uh, get going here. So, uh, well, it, I got to say, it surprises me a bit for you to say it's it's uh, a bigger threat than ESG. Uh, it's it's like one, it's it's like the thing versus the Hulk, I guess um uh, but before we jump into these threats to people's property investments it's look it's been a while since you've been on so for our listeners who may not be familiar with you i like people to know who you are and what and, and that you care before we get to know what you know so give us a little background on your previous work
1: sure yeah so I'm, I'm the research editor at the heartland institute as well as a research fellow within heartland socialism research center as you mentioned so I do a variety of things, including managing the publication process for all of Heartland's research and policy work, writing op-eds and also authoring my own policy publications, such as shorter form legislative tip sheets and research and commentaries, as well as longer form research papers and policy, policy studies, uh, such as the ESG paper, which was a Herculean effort, but um, also <laughs> including a recent paper on uh election policy, uh, a paper on the similarities between Russia's slide into into totalitarianism under Putin and what is occurring here in the United States, and a short book on the history of socialism geared towards teachers and students, which will be coming out in a few weeks. Um, I've also been recently heavily heavily focused upon the Uniform Commercial Code and Property Rights, which is the subject of this podcast, which I hope to... uh, communicate so, effectively to everyone.
0: So, you you just co-authored a study protecting private property through the Uniform Commercial Code. What is, you know, I, I, a lot of people may have heard of the Uniform Commercial Code or UCC, you know, many people probably never have. But what is it and why did it come into existence? Sure. So, the Uniform
1: Commercial Code or or the UCC is a very complex series of statutes that have been widely adopted in uniform fashion by all 50 states. It was, the the UCC was created in the late 1800s, I think 1892, perhaps by by an organization of lawyers, judges, legislators, legislative staff, and law professors called the Uniform Law Commission or the ULC. Um, So lots of fun acronyms for us here. On the ULC's website. The organization states that the UCC
0: was created
1: by the Uniform Law Commission. is is a comprehensive set of laws governing all commercial transactions in the United States. Well, hold on, it is not a fe- Yep.
0: Already, I'm um, a, a bit taken aback. So we have something called the Uniform Law Commission. Mm-hmm. What is its legal status? How does it get to make a code for the United States? I, I I I didn't see- I read the Constitution. I see things about legislatures and presidents and, and the judiciary. I don't see anything about an outside organization called the Uniform Law Commission that gets the right laws for the nation.
1: <laughs> well, that's a very that's a very good concern to have. And it's it's a concern that I and, and the team that I've been working with on this issue share. It it's supposed to be a uh, a nonpartisan sort of advisory group, but what, what that what ends up happening is that for for the uh, for the UCC and for all of the various amendments to the UCC which are passed, the ULC drafts up the model legislation, puts it in front of the states, and the state legislators essentially just rubber stamp it. So and this that's, is you know,
0: This is a this is sort of a uh, I guess I'd say a voluntary. I don't know if it's a nonprofit, but it's a it's a it's a it, it's an advisory organization created. Uh, by these, this group of people or from different institutions. And they write uh, uh, sort of model laws, model commercial yeah. laws. Exactly, yes. But those don't become, just because they wrote it, they don't become law just because they wrote it. What they do is they then Correct. take it, I guess it, they didn't take it to Congress, it's not a national law, they take it to the individual states and then they do or do not adopt them, but it sounds like they just basically adopt everything they write.
1: That's pretty much exactly correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and so the UCC, according to the ULC, the UCC, according to the Uniform Law Commission, is the quote unquote backbone of American commerce. And, you know, the UCC is vital for interstate commerce um, because it, it homogenizes statutes so that you can do business between states in and, and a variety of ways.
0: When without- When was it founded again? Early early 1890s. So, we had commerce. I, I'm convinced we had commerce between the states for the first 120 <laughs> years of its existence,
1: without yeah. this.
0: So, it can't be the case that it's the back that, that no commerce could take place, and yeah, we have, a, we have a provision in the Constitution that says only Congress can manage interstate commerce. So, I, I got to tell you, I'm I'm having a crisis of faith here, questioning whether the Uniform Law Commission is actually necessary to uh, America's continued commercial functioning.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you're not the only one here, Sterling, especially with what I have, uh, I and these other individuals with whom I've been working um, have uncovered about about the UCC, especially as it relates to, uh, to UCC Article 8, which governs investment securities.
0: So recent state law, recently states... Uh, getting this up to date, you know, uh, putting aside for, for now uh, my misgivings about this whole enterprise, um, yeah. uh, why do recent state laws implementing provisions of uh, – a particular provisions of the Uniform Commercial Code now pose a, pet, a threat to people's property? What, what do they do that create sure. that?
1: Yeah. Well. Well. First of all, I should clarify that these aren't even recent changes. So, so the the changes that I've been studying were actually uh, drafted in in 1994 and then adopted um, in various years between 1994 and and 1998 by all 50 states. Well. Um, and and even that. Go
0: ahead. Even that sort of recent vintage. I mean, the, evidently the UCC was around for a hundred years before that so we got around we got we got we got along without that for a hundred years too uh that's fair so what sparked it what's going on and what does it do i'm sorry i keep interrupting you but it's like i don't honestly i don't know much about this this topic and every time you say something i'm going what the heck
1: i hear you i hear you it's taken many weeks of, of study for me to get my arms around it but Basically, the only the only way that we've actually uncovered this issue um, is, is a former uh, hedge fund manager and author named uh, David Rogers Webb just revealed in his uh, recent book, The Great Taking, for which there's also an excellent documentary that I highly recommend. That you know claims that all these changes have happened and that we no longer have property rights based on these changes to the UCC. And and I should specify, we no longer have property rights related to investment securities because of these changes to the UCC, as well as some changes to the federal uh, bankruptcy law in uh, 2005, which I'll discuss a little bit later. But along with a few others at Heartland and some allied organizations, including a few attorneys We've we've verified Webb's claims to be completely true by looking at the UCC provisions, looking at articles written by law professors in the wake of the UCC's widespread adoption, and other primary documents, including a particularly enlightening exchange between the U.S. Federal Reserve and the European Union, which Webb cites in his book. But the essence of it is the moment that these states adopted these uh, these UCC amendments to Article eight, we lost our property rights, uh, specifically those related to investment securities. That includes stocks, bonds, IRAs, 401ks, mutual funds, ETFs, you name it.
0: Is that true if it, we just if we purchase it ourselves or only if we purchase it through like a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a broker?
1: It doesn't matter. If it's held in a securities account, it's at risk. Okay. Yes.
0: And explain um, to me how it's at risk and why the states uh, adopted this, because this sounds really crazy and dangerous to me.
1: Oh, I know. I know. Um, yeah. So basically what, what these changes did, it's we don't own any of these securities. What, what we now have is called a security entitlement which is essentially a contract with the securities intermediary, think you know, Fidelity or any other securities broker. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. If you were to contact your broker today to purchase 10 shares of a certain stock, Pepsi for example, your broker would then add those 10 shares to your account. You probably think you would own those shares, but you wouldn't. You would own a security entitlement to the shares rather than the underlying shares themselves. This is explicitly laid out in UCC Article 8. Worse still, protected creditors of securities brokers, such as the world's largest banks, are given priority ownership to security entitlements if the broker uses customer assets as collateral. This is directly from the UCC, what I'm about to read, quote-unquote. A claim of a creditor of a securities intermediary who has a security interest in a financial asset held by a securities intermediary has priority over claims of the securities intermediaries entitlement holders who have security entitlements with respect to that financial asset if the creditor has control over the financial asset. In plain speak, this means that secured creditors can take your assets if your broker goes bankrupt. You would become an unsecured creditor and your claim to your securities would would be at the very back of the line in any sort of bankruptcy proceedings.
0: So what would happen if I went out and liquidated everything now and asked for cash? Well,
1: I cannot offer financial advice, um, but
0: uh,
1: <laughs> I, I got news if, if it's if I it's an, if, you would be able to do that. If, yes. if, if, if I,
0: I hesitate now to put it into a bank, but I, I guarantee if I put it in my mattress, it wouldn't earn any interest, but they'd have hell getting it from me uh, once I did that.
1: Well, until of course they uh, they make using paper currency illegal and give us all CBDC, um, right? So uh,
0: you're killing you're killing me here, Jack. you I'm aware. You're I'm killing aware. me. So <laughs> this was adopted by states. Why? I know you can't get in people's heads. You're not a psychologist, but I mean, legislators in 50 states were became convinced this was a good idea what what arguments were made you know to to uh, uh, to convince them that allowing their constituents retirement funds to be stolen by big banks was a good idea
1: yeah so part of part of the rationale behind it was um well one of the things that led up to it was of course the digitalization of everything that occurred in the in the 70s and 80s and the need to create some uniform laws surrounding how, how securities are, are traded. But the, the the rationale behind this provision is basically to protect the systemically important financial institutions, because in these people's minds, um, the these systemically important financial institutions are the backbone of the economy, and they should have They should have the ability, according to them. Of course, I don't agree, but they should have the ability to prop themselves up while the rest of the country goes bankrupt.
0: Well, hold it. So, the same guys that were claimed to be too big to fail uh, during the financial crisis back in what, uh, 99, 09? I forget now. Well, well, look, you know, it it happened to savings and loans before that. So, the same same mismanagers, uh, mismanaged companies who were. Designated too big to fail. And then Congress says, well, we're going to fix that. So that never happens again. Um, they are they're still considered too big to fail and they can they can rob average folks if if, uh, if they get in trouble.
1: Yes. Yes. And actually, this has already been, been cemented into case law. Uh, so mm. basically, <laughs> During the, during the 2008 financial crisis, during the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, right. uh, J.P. Morgan Chase was both the custodian of Lehman's assets as well as a secured creditor of Lehman. When Lehman went under, J.P. Morgan froze Lehman's customer assets. And based on my conversations with some financial experts and attorneys, Lehman's retail accounts were sold off to another broker, but Lehman's institutional accounts, such as retirement funds, were frozen for five or six years while the bankruptcy proceedings played out. The courts ultimately ruled in favor of J.P. Morgan, based specifically upon UCC Article 8 and a change to federal bankruptcy law in 2005, which provided safe harbor for the systemically important financial institutions, meaning only the largest banks. So J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, City, et cetera. And so what that did is it, you know, gave gave precedent for this to happen. And while it's true that the institutional investors did eventually get their principal back, that was only because of a huge market rebound. But that's not the point. The point is that their securities were taken from them, that it was legally upheld in the courts, meaning that in the event of another financial crisis, in which more securities interme- intermediaries might go under, we could lose everything to the banks, like in the Great Depression. I, I mean, I mm-hmm. personally think, that our economy is being propped up by smoke and mirrors, such as
0: insane. So you are telling me that my private retirement funds purchased with my money through a retirement plan, but now managed by me in a real in any real sense aren't, aren't my, my property. And uh, if I understand what you're saying, banks, investment funds have equity or lien bondholders. They can take them in times of emergency. And my state legislators were OK with this.
1: In a word, yes. In more words, uh, yes, absolutely. This is very clearly laid out in UCC Article 8 and was actually cemented into case law during the 2008 financial crisis, during the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. Essentially, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, which was both the custodian of Lehman's assets as well as the secured creditor of Lehman, froze Lehman's customer assets. Based on my conversations with some financial experts and attorneys, Uh, Lehman's retail accounts were sold off to another broker, but Lehman's institutional accounts, such as retirement funds, were frozen for five or six years while the bankruptcy proceedings played out. The courts ultimately ruled in favor of JP Morgan, specifically based upon these amendments to UCC Article 8, as well as a change to federal bankruptcy law in 2005, which provided, quote unquote, safe harbor for the systemically important financial institutions, meaning only the largest banks, such as J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citi, et cetera. Now, it's true, the institutional investors did eventually get their principal back, but only because of a huge market rebound. That's not the point.
0: No, that, but, yeah, the point wait, you say that. Well, let me ask you this. So the, by institutional investors, who do you mean? What, what I mean, I mean what, is, I, what I mean is this. So I have a, I have a retirement fund. Um, it's, it's you know diversified. Uh, I manage it myself uh, through Schwab. Yes. Yeah. And um, is my fund a retail fund or an institutional investor fund?
1: That I am not certain of. What I, what I do know is that uh, certain like. Uh, state retirement fund, such as the state of South Dakota's uh, retirement fund, um, was uh, what was was considered one of these institutional investors, and had their assets caught up for five or six years. So,
0: what happens? Yeah. What happens if someone retires during that time and needs to take their money out? I, I, I mean, I, do, I, I mean, you know say you, you say you say the investor, so that means the fund, uh, California Perg or whatever. Uh, um, they they eventually got their money back or their control over those funds back, which is what it actually is. Um, yeah. But if I was a retiree who retired during that time, it sounds like I couldn't use my retirement fund. And, of course...
1: That's, that's more than likely correct, yes. And, and, and also... When they're frozen, they're not gaining any more uh, you know, interest or anything like that. They're, yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. frozen and held in the base. So. so,
0: so I can't, I can't access the retirement fund I put into. And of course, you say, well, they eventually got it back. But if I die in the intervening years, I never yeah. accessed my retirement fund. So, in no real sense did I ever get it back.
1: Yeah, they, pretty much. Yes, wow. and that's and that's that, the the point here is that. Their securities were taken from them, and it was legally upheld in the courts, meaning that in the event of another financial crisis in which more securities intermediaries go under, we could lose everything to the banks, like in the Great Depression. I mean, I personally think that our economy is being propped up by smoke and mirrors, such as insane amounts of money printing by the Fed, $34 trillion in debt, and an out-of-control derivatives complex, and that we're on a totally unsustainable Economic path, but that's a conversation for another podcast
0: <laughs> well, man I, 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 you left me with a little bit of not 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 knowing what to say, and anything that I would say uh is probably uh would get me on some kind of watch list or something um. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'll I'll take I'll take that watch list uh, position for you uh, throw me on main core.
0: Uh, Fine. I just <laughs> um what the um so my my state legislators thought this was a good idea.
1: Yeah. So here, here, how, let me give you How are they convinced yeah. of so,
0: this? How are they convinced of this? How are they convinced that I who go to the polls and vote and and impossible, and you know, and and some really really rich people who actually give money to these guys, that allowing banks to take their retirements and stocks was a good idea for them as a matter of, uh, you know, uh, you know, electoral politics.
1: Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. And that's a question that we've wondered. That's a question that uh, constituents will have to ask their legislators, and I urge them all to do so. That being said, because the UCC is a very complex uh, set of, of statutes. Typically, legislators just enact whatever the Uniform Law Commission and its allied banking lobbyists put in front of them. They, they literally just rubber stamp it. And only recently has there been an effort to push back, but it's, it's still very small. There have been recent efforts to push back regarding some updates to another uh, provision of the UCC related to um, central bank digital currencies and uh, deposit accounts, but that's that's a totally different subject. And then now we've we've already got some um, some pushback against the UCC related to this topic in in a few states, including in South Dakota. Um, but but the, the true problem here is the Uniform Law Commission and the banking lobby. Yes, legislators have played a role, but they've just and they, they totally deserve to be put on the spot about why they allowed this to go through and why they are still supporting it. So, for example, um, the uh, the bill in South Dakota that would have amended the UCC in South Dakota went before committee yesterday, and it was voted down 11 to one. Um, and, and it's just, and, and the facts were laid out, and these committee members still rejected the bill. In fact, um, multiple people who testified, including uh, some some banking lobbyists and including the, uh, the chief counsel of the Uniform Law Commission, directly lied in the course of the proceedings, either by omission or by direct statement of fact. Well, and, now, uh, so, when
0: they, I don't know, but often when they testify they're under oath, can someone not take them to account for that?
1: Well, that's what we're trying to do. Um, and So one of the things that's going to happen here is that a few of the people who testified um, on behalf of the uh, on behalf of keeping the UCC as it is ended up actually going up to um, the representative who who sponsored the bill after the uh, after the hearing. And said that they were wrong in their testimony because they didn't read the whole provision. They basically just read what they thought their talking points were supposed to be, and they now want to amend their testimony, which is going to allow it to be reheard. I think on the on the full floor. Don't quote me on that, but that's what I've heard.
0: Yeah, they um, they they know they, they, what'll happen. In my experience, is they'll be allowed to amend their testimony. There'll be, but there'll be no other hearings. So it looked like they testified orig- the right way originally. And uh, the politicians just let it slide.
1: Yeah, the <sighs> term that I've that there's going to be a smoke out or something uh, next mm. next week, and then that they're going to be allowed, and that they do have the number of votes on the floor that are uh, necessary for this to happen. But I'm not an expert on yeah. those procedures and policies. <laughs> this is just secondhand information. But I mean, ultimately, the authors of this system were the ULC and the banks. This is on them. Plus, it's important to remember that even if legislators from three decades ago share some of that culpability, which I think they do, yeah. most of those legislators are probably no longer in office. Right. Um, so that being said, it's now current legislators who have the responsibility to act. And unfortunately, based on the evidence from South Dakota, most of them aren't doing so.
0: Well, let me ask you this, because you you've mentioned that They also changed U.S. uh, bankruptcy code. And the federal courts have recognized this in the Lehman Brothers case. So let's say my home state's governor, Greg Abbott, when the legislature is back in session next year. Thankfully, we don't have legislators every year. Legislate, you know, uh, Congress in session every year, the House. Um, Mm -hmm. He says, you know, we need to change this. This is wrong. And they get to it and they actually ignore the banking lobby, you know, as far fetched as that might be to imagine. Um, But they did that and they rescinded our uh, agreement to that provision of the Uniform Commercial Code. Would we be protected then or would we be now covered because of the bankruptcy law, the federal law? I mean, would it take all 50 states and a change in the bankruptcy law to get this fixed?
1: No, so and and that's where it gets confusing, so but but ultimately, yes, you would be protected if these provisions were repealed. um and any anybody in texas would be would be protected if this uh, if these provisions were repealed. So, the federal bankruptcy change. Uh, based on my interpretation and the interpretation of others who are lawyers, it's kind of like a tack on to the UCC. But the UCC is where the heart of the problem lies. the The, the federal bankruptcy law change, you know, gives gives banks safe harbor, but it's more of like it, it it just makes it easier for them to, you know, take all of our securities. But the UCC is really what provides the problem in the first place. And so because of that, you know, the solution is, is pretty simple and practical. Um, and, and the good thing about this issue is that there is like there is no partisanship involved in any way. This affects no. every American who owns securities. It does not matter whether you are a Democrat, a Republican or an independent. The or or that state It don't matter. It doesn't matter. And so what we do is we strike right to the heart of the problem and we amend Article A to the UCC in as many states as we can, which is what we've attempted to do in South Dakota. Although that's obviously not going so well, but we need to spread the word so that we can actually get some pressure from uh, states' constituents upon their legislators. Um, So basically we we amend the UCC to ensure that entitlement holders have priority over creditors. And we also amend the UCC to ensure that any legal proceedings regarding bankruptcies are determined in the state of the individual investor rather than the state of the broker-dealer, custodian or clearing corporation, so that you know your your dispute is not being handled in, in Maryland or New York or, or Brussels for all that for, for that matter. Yeah. Um, and at, you, you know, you know
0: you'd think. Look, I'm me. I'm an individual guy. I'm, I'm, you know, a small guy. But you would think, say, a teacher's retirement fund, even in Texas, you know, where we don't have uh, the strongest unions and things. um, You would think that, say, the uh, public employees union retirement funds, be that the teachers, the police, the fire department, whatever, uh, they would be all over this. And they would be able to apply an equal or greater amount of pressure to legislators if they were made aware that this is uh, uh, a possibility. Yes. Yes.
1: And then right now we're in that phase where we're just trying to inform as many people as possible. We we wrote this mini policy paper, which is actually more of a coalition letter aimed at state legislators about a month ago. We've gotten a lot of decent support there, but not nearly enough. And uh, you know, we we've written a few op eds about it that we've had placed in some fairly prominent publications that we've gotten a lot of really good feedback on and a lot of also really scared people because, you know, this is very serious stuff and people should be scared. And right.
0: uh I guess I guess yeah. I'd recommend that you target the uh the heads and the employees, you know, specifically of these different retirement funds, send us, you know, look, it, it, it takes resources to write letters, I guess, but um, even in this day, electronic day. Uh, but it seems to me you could tailor the letter you've already written. I haven't read the letter to to the heads of the different retirement funds and their, and their, um, their uh, holders, the, yeah. and, and their, 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 uh, you know, the teachers, the police, the, the fire departments, whatever, uh, their members. That's what I mean, their membership. And uh, bring this very, you know, not, not sort of, oh, hopefully they'll read my op-ed, but bring it directly to those people's attention so they might right. apply the pressure to the legislature.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: it's a good idea. A well, good every idea. so often I find one, I have one. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Jack, after sending me off in a tizzy, uh, I have to get my head back in order because I have another podcast. But before I do, (laughs) in closing, uh, if there were only a single point you'd like our listeners to take away from this discussion today, what would be the most important point for them to take away?
1: You don't own what you think you own, and you need to contact your state legislators as soon as possible so that we can repeal these provisions of the UCC reclaim our property rights and protect our property in the event of a wide-scale financial downturn.
0: That is a very, very important point. And I hope our listeners take it seriously and, and, and act. Jack, as always, it's been good speaking with you. I look forward to doing it again in the future, even if not on a podcast. And I want to thank you for coming on the show on behalf of myself and our listeners.
1: Thank you, Sterling. I look forward to being on in the future as well.
0: Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow as Heartland scholars continue to expose creeping socialism in all its forms and regulatory legislative and judicial threats to private property. Also continue us to follow us as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. And if you're not already receiving these podcasts, daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. You might also want to check out our weekly climate change roundtable live stream every Friday on your favorite social media streaming service, where Anthony Watts, Linnea Lucan, myself, and usually guests discuss the climate topic of the week, complete with taking questions from viewers. Thanks. Take care. Bye.